but to me, it was never so much the subject. It was always uh, the actual watercolor paint that I found fascinating. You know, it wasn't so much what we were painting, but how it moved around on the paper. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Today I'm speaking with Shari Blaukoff, an artist, urban sketcher and art educator from Montreal. Shari's work is really fascinating because it has a quality that many other artists would envy. Whether you see her work from up close or from a distance, instantly you know that you like it. Regardless of whether you're an artist yourself or just someone scrolling down their social media feed, her watercolor work works for you at multiple levels. With light and color and shadows, Shari is able to paint her world in a way that is instantly recognizable, relatable, and lovable. In today's conversation, I try to understand the habits and the regular practices that have made Shari into the artist that she is. I learn from her that What and how we paint depends on what and how we see. And so it is equally important to work on the seeing part as it is to work on the painting part. In different ways, through blogging and her experience as an art educator, Shari has put herself through the grind of expressing and communicating her art to an audience. This compels her to develop both an insider and an outsider's perspective on her own work. How does she use this to improve? How does she use this to inspire herself? This is an episode packed with a lot of great practical advice and I really hope that you will enjoy it. Good morning, Shari, and welcome to the Good Sneaky morning. Art Podcast. Good morning, Nishant. I'm very happy to have you here. You are an artist that I've followed for very long on social media, and I've admired your work for a really long time. Thank you. It's it's an honor to be here and talk to you. It was it was nice. It was nice when we met in Chicago. That was the first time we met, and we drew together. So it's nice to continue the conversation here. I agree. Shari, like a lot of people that I come to know through online sources, like in your in your our case, I came to know your work first through Instagram. My understanding of you as an artist is very patchy and it's based on whatever I might have read at some point and whatever I might have seen on a story at some point. So I know you as an artist. I know you as an educator. But could you tell me, like maybe trace the arc of how you came to be where you are today and how art has played a role in your life? Sure. Um, Art has always been in my life. I was one of those kids who was always drawing. And, um, you know, I I got the art prize in high school. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I was always the one who was drawing and took all the art classes and helped everybody like in the yearbook, you know, the high school yearbook. Uh, so it goes way back, my history with my love of drawing. I always had colored pencils and I would spend hours in my room drawing things with colored pencils. And um, when I was in my teens, I don't know how, but my parents 
thought I might enjoy watercolor classes. So when I was about 12, I went to study with a man who taught in, in Montreal who lived not too far. And he had, he was a man from Germany and he taught watercolor. So he had a little studio in his basement. And that's where my love of watercolor started when I was really young, like in my teens. So when you were painting as a young person, what were the kind of subjects that were interesting to you? Uh, well, you know, I guess probably I, I'm thinking back in his basement. Uh, it wasn't so much what was interesting to me, but it was more what what was always in front of us. So we always had a still life or flowers or something like that, maybe the occasional model. Um, but to me, it was never so much the subject. It was always uh, the actual watercolor paint that I found fascinating. You know, it wasn't so much what we were painting, but how it moved around on the paper that I always found fascinating. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I continued painting and, and then I eventually uh, went into, you know, I went to university and I studied graphic design. But even taking all those graphic design courses, my complementary courses were always painting and drawing and, you know, doing things that were related to graphic design, but not, uh, you know, not uh, career oriented, in other words. And, you know, at the time that I studied at Concordia University, and the instructors were, there were a lot of abstract painters. But for me, even back then, um, I guess what always interested me was looking at things and drawing them. So drawing from observation, I would say, interested me from way back when, even when the trend at school was something very different. It wasn't um, necessarily uh, observational. I imagine a graphic design course is not primarily to do with drawing from observation in any sense. So how, what, what kind of right. things did you study that were a little different from what you do today? Uh, well, I studied, you know, graph, basic graphic design back then. And back then it was before computers. Uh, it was um, typography, uh, page layout, illustration. I did do a lot of illustration because, you know, that tied into what I did. Um, but one thing that the, the main thing that connected painting for me and graphic design was the principles and elements of design. In graphic design, we learned balance and rhythm and harmony and um, repetition. And those were all really, really important. So understanding how to divide up a page layout, how to make a page layout into columns and use grids and understand all of that came into play eventually, because eventually I... Um, I studied with a man in watercolor uh, whose name is Ed Whitney, and he's he was in his 80s or 90s when I studied with him. You know, he died a long time ago, um, but he has a very famous book, um, and uh, it's I have it right here. It's called The Complete Guide to Watercolor Painting, and uh, podcast listeners can't see it, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, I keep it near me all the time and I, I look I look at it all the time. So what Ed taught was not so much how to put paint on the paper, but he taught composition and design within your painting. 
So there was the marriage of my career and my hobby through, through understanding composition. I feel like a lot of artists I see in the urban sketching community, for example, they, or even some who are really good at the technical skill of drawing, you sometimes feel that their work is just missing that compositional touch. And like you explained with grids, uh, how, how to put elements that matter in certain places and how to balance that, that page with other elements. And I think that's such an important skill, which a lot of us intuitively come to in some ways, or at least that's the process we have to put ourselves through to understand how to, what makes that same drawing look better if you just change the point of view a little bit. Yes, exactly. And I think for me, it's kind of intuitive now because, you know, over all the years of uh, working as a graphic designer, my main focus was usually um, working on magazine layouts. That, that's what I really loved. So magazine layouts are always, you know, working with contrast with a big photo and then a big letter of typography and then small letters. And so all that balance and contrast and creating a focus on the page is the same thing as creating a focus in your sketch. I worked a lot with that over the years. And um, so I always go back to, as you see, that Ed Whitney book is sitting on my on my desk and I look at it all the time. And I still even look at my notes from the time when I studied painting with him. So so watercolors have been like a part of your life for forever. Like that's forever. that's been your chosen medium right from the start. Right from the start. And uh, I painted a lot. Um, until, and I had, I had exhibits and I, I, you know, I would go on painting retreats until I had kids and then, and then everything kind of stopped. And I, I was continued working as a graphic designer, but I stopped most, most painting and drawing for about 20 years while my kids were growing up. And, um, uh, then when I went back and I stopped I didn't stop working as a graphic designer, but I got into teaching graphic design. That's when I picked up sketching again. I was talking with Paul just last night, and we were talking about how the act of teaching and the act of kind of enumerating the, the thoughts you have and the things you almost take for granted because they're just your own mental processes. But when you're explaining it to someone, you put yourself through a more rigorous understanding of it, and you gain a lot of insight into things that you took for granted. What do you feel like you have gained from teaching now? Well, uh, I have to take one step back before I answer, because I, I think that um, what really helped me be a better sketching teacher was doing my blog, writing my blog. And um, my blog just I, just, I I never check how many posts I did, but I was just checking out of curiosity. And I just reached uh, a 2,000 posts milestone. And uh, I started it in 2011. And when I started it in 2011, and that was when I went back to sketching and I just started posting sketches. And um, not long after that, when I met Mark Tarot Holmes, who lives in Montreal as well, and we went out sketching for the very first time um, to the Red Path Museum and we sketched the dinosaurs, he explained to me um, sort of the mission of urban sketchers and the idea that the writing is just as important as, as the, as the drawing. And up until that point, I hadn't really been writing about my work. 
So I didn't know what I wanted to write about. But when I did start writing, I started uh, accompanying my sketches with some text about the process. So writing about the process, um, and it kind of evolved into a more educational blog when I had the time, that really helped me as a teacher. Because I was, I would be sitting in my car because I sketched a lot on my way to school or on my way back from school. And because I live in Montreal and it's cold in the winter. So I sketch a lot in the car. And I would be thinking at the same time as I'm sketching, what do I want to write about today? Because when I first started my blog, I, I posted every day for about three years. So I, I did about a thousand sketches. So I would constantly be thinking about, okay, what am I going to write about? Like, what is important? What are the decisions that I'm making as I'm looking at this scene? Am I making decisions about composition? Am I making decisions about color um, or mood? What do I want to say about the day? And that became very important. Like if there's, if it was a windy day, I, I wanted always to bring it back to uh, the present. Like to me, it's not interesting so much to talk about something I did a long time ago. It's more interesting. What was I thinking about when I did this? So the writing really helped me. And um, it also, you know, I like teaching because I like people. So when I started teaching around the, around the same time, or maybe about a year before that, I started teaching graphic design to college kids. Um, I think what I liked about the teaching too was the connection to people and um, getting across an idea and then seeing how that sinks in and, and, uh, and also the back and forth of learning from them and then learning from me. So I guess all of that comes into play. But I, I, but I would say really my blog helped me most in the thinking about the process. I really like what you said there because I feel that this, even this process, like blogging is a way of, even before you speak to an audience, you're, you're kind of speaking to yourself and you're articulating a lot of things. And that process of articulation, it helps us to break down our challenges and to, like you say, to, to think about what is it that I'm doing today that's new to me? What is the interesting challenge of this sketch? And just thinking like that is a feels like a very nice way to improve in small steps every day and even keeps it fresh and engaging. Exactly, exactly. That And that, and that still to this day, uh, relates to watercolor because I think with watercolor you you're always learning like there's always something to learn because it's you know it's never predictable right it's always a little chaotic water because the balance of pigment and water and how things dry and what's wet when you touch it and so I'm still learning after all these years every time I paint and uh, you know and the same thing with sketching and every time I draw there's always something to be learned so I you know I go out and I look at wherever I am or my neighborhood and, you know, what do I want to do differently today that I didn't do yesterday? Like I'll look for a, something difficult to draw, to push myself. And and I guess it's really nice to hear that even somebody who's been drawing every day or even if nearly every day for so many years can still find some small way to push themselves every day and find something new and something engaging. Like a lot of people would look at your work and say that you've reached so far ahead. What have you got to improve? And, you know, you get a lot of uh, co compliments like that. But from the point of view of the artist, there is always another horizon and there's always so much further to go again. 
Oh yeah. And you're in your own head. It's never like that. It's like, you're only really thinking about your last failure. Like how, how could I have done that so badly? <laughs> you don't think about like success. T- tell me Shari, how did urban sketching come into your life and what kind of, uh, what kind of experience was it getting into this? Well, I, I didn't really know what urban sketching was when I went back to sketching in 2011, but I think um, that I bought a book. Uh, it, I think it was a Danny Gregory book, an illustrated journey where it's different sketchbook artists and, uh, and their work. And the sketches in there that sort of portrayed the everyday were really fascinating to me. You know, it didn't, they weren't pretty pictures necessarily, but they were people chronicling their everyday lives. And it was really interesting to me because at that point, my kids were finally a little older and I had a little more free time and I was able to say, okay, I have to bring drawing back into my life. But I had a very busy life because I was teaching uh, graphic design and I still had a freelance business in graphic design as well. So how could I bring drawing back into my life in a meaningful way, but that wasn't very time consuming. So I wanted to just um, just start keeping a sketchbook, even a very tiny three inch by five inch sketchbook that I could carry with me and just do a five or 10 minute drawing every day. So that's how it evolved. I, I, I started looking online, like who else does sketching, you know, and then I found Urban Sketchers. And then it was just an absolute revelation when I found Urban Sketchers blog. And there were these hundred people who posted about their daily lives and their the world around them. And um, I just I just found it so, so thrilling, first of all, because there was the international component of, you know, seeing people's work from around the world. And so I said, this is something I just, I was so excited. I have to be part of this. So that's when I started uh, thinking, well, maybe I could go to a symposium. And the first one that I went to in 2012 in Santo Domingo was the first time I participated in a symposium. So, um, you know, that idea that I could just uh, do a sketch uh, and it, I could do it anywhere. And it it didn't have to be like, oh, I take out all my paints and I set up a big thing. And it was something very portable. Um, and that, uh, and that connection with everyday life was something very attractive to me. That's, that's quite interesting. I find a lot of people who have a background in any kind of fine arts or any kind of training in art itself something they enjoy about urban sketching is the spontaneity that it affords that it allows them and the idea that you can you can do something uh, quickly and in in a very uh, in a sense leave it unfinished quote unquote and that's like it it just relieves so much pressure and even even now when you think of asking people to uh, to draw or to paint something i think for a lot of people the biggest obstacle is always the idea of how to how would I finish it? How would I make it look like what I think a painting or a drawing should look yeah. like at the end? Right. The idea that it's a sketch is an interesting one because sometimes people say to me, well, is that a sketch or is that a painting? You know, because now my sketches are bigger, right? And so, um, you know, so what, what is the difference between a sketch and a painting? A big sketch is, a, is really a painting, I don't know, for me, a painting is, is on a separate sheet of paper and it's maybe bigger and a sketch is in a book. 
and it might be smaller, but there's a lot of overlap between those things. The tactile experience is very important. The idea of holding paper, touching paper, holding a pen in your hand that many people got away from when computers started. So I, I started my graphic design experience uh, sketching out layouts. It was a tactile experience. And then we moved into computers and then it became a digital experience and the tactile was completely removed. So I noticed when I went back to urban sketching that there were many people in similar fields who might have been around my age who wanted to get back to the tactile. Architects, landscape architects, graphic designers, illustrators, who all had moved to CAD, to Illustrator, to the digital, and then realized, well, I really miss that tactile experience and I want to get back to sketching because we had all started drawing. And I noticed with my students, college age students, 17 year olds, never experience the tactile. Like they don't even come to class with a pen and uh, or a notebook. So I got them sketching, which is what brought me back to sketching. Like I was teaching them how to do illustration, teaching them Adobe Illustrator, and they never sketched out ideas. I completely feel what you're saying because, uh, so I'm kind of in the middle, I think, because I, when I was growing up and I was an early teen, that's when uh, digital, desk, what, we, what we would call DTP, desktop publishing, that became a thing. And then suddenly there was Photoshop and all these tools. And actually, for me, it happened in exactly this way too. Like I, when I started drawing and I was a very young kid, of course, like all kids, I was using color pencils and pastels and watercolors and things. But once I, uh, and this happens to so many people, once I stopped, because I grew to a certain age and you stop drawing and you stop painting and you do other things, I couldn't find myself back going back into it because of these notions of how you're supposed, your art is supposed to look. And at that time, I was exposed to digital art and drawing with a tablet on connected to a laptop. And that for me was a very liberating thing at that moment. It allowed me to make mistakes and correct my mistakes. It allowed me to make a lot of things very quickly and not have to show anybody or feel like I quote unquote ruined the page. Just the idea that it's virtual. But then I reached this point where I felt exactly what you're saying, that I need to feel like what my the brushes that I use, I want to know what they actually feel like. Because... Yeah. I'm sort of using them with the same mouse or the same uh, stylus and they all feel the same. So I don't yeah, quite understand the dynamics of this brush. Yeah, you went the opposite way. Exactly right. So I was doing the pencil tool or the pen tool and the Fude pen tool and all of them feel the same because I'm, it's the same stylus touching the same tablet. So I'm, I felt like I wasn't able to really understand the dynamics that this brush is supposed to give me. And I, maybe I need to travel back in time and now actually use the real thing. And that's when I kind of came across urban sketching and urban sketchers and people who do this. And just this exchange between traditional and digital media, I feel like each one informed the other and helped me with specific obstacles in the other. When I would get stuck on digital work, I would find inspiration in traditional media that would help me overcome that and the other way around. So I kind of see where your students are coming from, but I also really appreciate the value that you offer them in making them use traditional media a little bit. 
Yeah, they, they ended up really liking it. And, you know, I would say in a class of 20, there would always be one who would continue sketching. And I can, you know, I sort of consider that a success. Okay, I converted one. <laughs> yeah, good. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. So uh, tell me something, Shari. Uh, I want to know, like, when you, when you work with watercolors um, and you're looking at a scene and then there are urban sketchers, like, suppose if I was sitting right next to you and drawing the same scene, I would approach it with a fountain pen or a fine liner. So there's this basic difference in how we are both looking at the scene that we're looking at and then bringing it out on the paper. What do you think, you know, having used a lot of these media yourself, can you tell me what is the basic difference that a watercolorist brings when they, you know, when they go into an empty page versus somebody who's doing line work? Well, I, you know, I, I think um, I can only speak for my own experience as a watercolorist. And again, it goes back to my training in you know, with Ed Whitney and des page design and whatever, is that when I look at a scene, I see shapes. I don't see lines and lines only come after. So I'm always most comfortable. I mean, if I could probably paint the same scene with torn paper, just by ripping up paper and putting, sh and putting like gluing down little bits of paper, because I see the scene in shapes. And I had a really interesting discussion with um, uh, Gail Wong from Urban Sketchers when we were looking at a scene together I forget I was sketching with her in Barcelona or Singapore at a symposium and she is an architect so she looks at volumes so she looks out and she sees volumes and I look out and I see flat shapes so to me a building against a sky is a flat shape maybe with two sides against another flat shape um, whereas she's looking at the thing as a whole, you know, that building as a whole, as a volume in space and I flatten things. So, um, even, you know, even when I'm drawing and I could choose between a brush pen and, uh, a line pen, like, a like, a, a you know, uh, a, a, a Lamy Safari or whatever, I will choose the brush pen because I can get to the shape faster. I can like put the brush on its side and make a shape. So, so that, you know, I, I do draw with pen or pencil or whatever, but I'm still most comfortable with a brush in my hand because I, I, I don't know. I think it's just the way I see the world after all these years of painting. I see it as, as flat shapes. I don't know if that's weird. I don't know how other people think. I mean, no, but... I, I, I think it's exceedingly common because uh, I think that I have to do the same thing. You like when I'm drawing and I'm doing all line work and I'm trying to, to break down the challenge of drawing these complex shapes, like people's faces and the way their hair is falling on their shoulders. And I have to stop seeing it as what I recognize it as and just see it as a shape. And just see it as lines that, you know, lines that go in different ways and they constitute these funny, interesting shapes. So if you like when you were in you were in my workshop and I, I tell in my workshop that I, I ask people to draw really long lines and draw really complex shapes at once because I, I want to get into this zone of breaking down what we see and not really putting our perception of what it is. Right. Like, I feel like a, a very important part of how we draw is 
to not draw what we think something is, but to really draw it as it appears before us. So important, so important that that looking because often, uh, you know, when, when I'm teaching, I tell people if they're they want to see lights and darks to squint, and when you squint, uh, shapes merge, so objects merge. With, with an object will merge with its shadow or a person will merge with a building. And so I try to get them to find those shapes that are related in value, but not in form necessarily, not in, you know, single forms. Yeah. So if you're looking at things at shapes, I feel another thing that you're doing when you're working as a watercolorist is you're also breaking a scene down into its colors. And I feel like an important thing that you pick when you would, if you would pick a scene and, you know, you walk around a garden to look for the kind of view that you want to draw and the thing that might appeal. And I'm thinking of this as the way that I kind of like to design some, I do most of my color work digitally. So then when I look at a digital piece that I like to draw, the colors almost have to balance and contrast the right ways, complement the right ways. And I feel like uh, working with watercolors is a great way to kind of dive into that, to see what colors work well next to each other and which ones end up diluting the the effect that you're trying to create when if they don't create that contrast. So for people who don't, my question is, if for people who don't quite understand things like color theory or don't formally understand which colors work with each other, what's like a good urban sketchers hack to like to get to quickly imbibe the basics of color theory so the 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 first workshop that i ever taught was in barcelona and it was called triad symphony and it was about using just a triad of primary colors so to me the easiest way to understand color and in fact i did a thing in chicago too that was similar to that um, is to just use three colors so i suggest just using Uh, a yellow, a red, and a blue, and working with those three same pigments, like just pick, you know, a cool yellow, a cool red, and a blue, um, and work with those for a very long time till you truly understand what they do and how they mix together. And if you pick, you know, the pigments that I suggest are maybe like a Um, you know, like a Hansa yellow light and an alizarin crimson and an ultramarine blue, because you can get bright orange with that and bright purple and bright green. And you can, because the alizarin and the ultramarine are quite dark, you can also get interesting darks. And if you mix all three together, you can get neutrals. So pick three colors that you have on your palette instead of using the 12, most people have about 12 colors. Instead, just limit yourself and really, really understand them. Then when you add one more color to those, then you'll start to, you know, it's sort of a scientific process, right? You, you have your, your, the ones you understand and then you add one more, then you'll see how that changes it. So I took a workshop a couple of years ago from an oil painter and she told me that she worked for six years with three oil pigments plus white. And then she really understood color. So I thought, well, six years is a bit long to tell people, but... It, it reminds me of this uh, documentary I saw. It's called uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Have you seen it by any chance? No. Is it something I would highly I watch? recommend watching it. It's like food porn. 
Oh. It's about a, a three Michelin star rated sushi chef in Japan. And he he's working out of a 10-seat restaurant in a, in a subway station in Japan. And he's got three Michelin stars. And because of the process of rigor that he puts himself through to make the perfect sushi. And he's got acolytes who train under him for years. And one of them worked for him for 10 years only on rice before he was allowed to touch the fish. That's great. Exactly. So that is exactly what I mean. You work with the rice for 10 years and then you can add a little tiny bit of fish. And no, that's, that really is how you understand. Also, I think really important is understanding lights and darks and values. So the other thing that I suggest to people is to uh, work often in monochrome, like take Payne's Gray and uh, or diluted or diluted India ink and really try and understand lights and darks. And if I would say like the one most important thing is our understanding um, like dominant color, like making one thing more like like if you if for example, if you're drawing a scene and there's a little blue, a little green, a little red, a little yellow, like a patchwork, it's not as interesting as if there's a lot of blue and a little spot of orange. That's more exciting, right? So those are the kind of things I think of when I'm thinking of color in a scene. What color is going to be the dominant color? And is there a little bit of the complement that will enhance it, will make it stand out? Shari, when people are trying to learn color or they're trying to, even if they're trying to learn to draw in any way, you, you'll find so many more people are inclined to learning from photo references, from photos they download off Google or something that they've seen on TV versus drawing from observation. What is a good reason to prefer drawing from observation? Well, I think drawing from observation is always more dynamic because, um, you know, you, you might be looking at a scene that has movement in it. Um, it's not fixed in time. So, uh, you know, you're moving, the scene is moving, and it just becomes a more exciting drawing for me, I think. Um, also, um, you know, uh, when you, let's go back to working from photos, um, taking a photo using a camera, and, and let's just preface this by saying that if you work from a photo, it should always be your own photo, not somebody else's, because uh, I think that you've already made decisions when you've put the the camera up or you've put your phone up, you've already made some decisions. So those should be your own decisions and not somebody else's and not even going into copyright issues. So, but, but even the camera view should be your own view, but I, but um, you know, a camera, especially a phone camera has a lot of distortion in it. So that I don't, and, uh, but for me, the exciting thing is taking the 3d, the, the world around you, um, and putting it on a sheet of paper. So when it's already two-dimensional in a photo, there's no excitement at all for me. But I think there's also a lot of learning in seeing. So if you're looking at something in front of you and you're trying to see it and you're looking at, you're measuring with your eyes, um, that to me involves a lot more learning process than looking at something that's already in a rectangle and figuring out where the vanishing points come out of that rectangle. 
you know, how they, how they are on the edge of the page. Like there's no learning for me in that it's already done. Whereas if you're looking at a scene and it's, you know, it's, a, I mean, with our peripheral vision, it's, you know, it's not 180 degrees, but I mean, it's a very wide angle. So what are you taking from that scene and putting on your paper? That's a lot more interesting to me. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think people uh, in pursuit of doing, like it, it can be argued that it's simpler to just draw from a photo, but what you lose in the process of going for that simplicity is some like uh, what you just said is something I didn't really explicitly think of that, that creative decision of convert, of looking at something and then seeing what part of it is important to you rather than letting a previously taken photograph, whether it's yours or someone else's decide already for you, what is important. Even like, I feel like you'd be more inclined to, uh, forego the act of composing the image yourself if you have a photograph exactly. you'd be more inclined to draw the exact photograph the way it is rather than something from it yes and and uh someone sent me a question um recently about um uh i was asking because i have i have online classes now on my own teaching site and somebody asked me a question. I, I, I had actually said, what do you want to learn? I sent out a survey and I said, what do people want to learn? You can send me ideas if there's something specific. And somebody said to me, um, could you, could you paint from a photo? Like when I paint from a photo, it's always so boring. That was the question. How do you make it exciting when you're painting from a photo? Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because I, I think you know, a photo for me is basically very flat and unexciting. And you almost have to take the photo uh, and make a sketch from it and find something interesting in there and then paint from that sketch where you've already interpreted it and then make a painting from that, if you understand what I mean. Because looking at the photo, you know, it's just, I don't know, it, it's just, it's, I find it so uninspiring i mean i i do paint from photos sometimes i you know it's i have the winter is long in montreal and i don't can't always get out um so i've taught myself out of necessity to paint from photos also because when i'm giving online classes i can't always record them outside so i have to paint from some kind of photo reference sometimes i feel like there is i mean there's value in any kind of practice that you put yourself through as long as we are aware of what we what the trade-off is. So if we're working from photos, the trade-off that you lose in composition exists. And yeah. the trade-off that the, uh, the, this complicated scene with a dynamic natural activity, like even the wind or the sun changing position, all of that is uh, taken care of for you. So there's this, being aware of that trade-off, there is still a lot to learn. So like for something, something that I did initially, I still do that very often as an exercise to teach myself composition, in fact, is I freeze frame scenes from movies or TV shows that I'm really enjoying. And some of them are really good on cinematography. So I freeze frame, I take a picture and then I draw that scene as a way to reverse engineer my education in what makes a good scene. So if something about this scene appealed to me and I can't put my finger on it, I find that drawing that scene out will usually help me understand what about it I liked. Yeah, 
I think that's a great way to do it. And, and, or also to, I think to, to take um, a photo that you might have something interesting in it and you want to do a painting from it, but, but try and make it better by trying it different ways, using different compositions, cropping it different ways, simplifying it, taking things out, um, uh, you know, even taking a photo and converting it to black and white and then using just the black and white values to do a different interpretation of color, like paint it in different colors. That's a good exercise too. Um, so there's lots of things that you can, you know, you can make photos work for you as well, which I think, you know, there's always, there's always ways to learn. What are some of the other interesting questions you've received from your students? I find it very interesting the way people are able to interact with your work. And then when they take your, your workshops and they, they look at the videos of you go taking them through the process of drawing, I find that just looking at people do these things, it raises a lot of questions in me. So I was really glad to hear that you ask your students for feedback after the course is done, because usually when I take any kind of lessons from somebody, I have way more questions afterwards than before. Well, I haven't, I, I only just did the survey, so I haven't done that many courses yet in response to that. But um, a lot of people on location want to learn how to simplify a scene. Like they just, they're in a city and they're, they're looking at an urban scene and they just don't know what to keep in and take out and what enhances the composition and what doesn't. And um, so that's something I want to tackle. I'm not sure how yet. I mean, I try to uh, when I'm, even when I'm looking at a photo, but that's something that I want to tackle in a bigger way. Um, and um, I guess, you know, I guess in watercolor, the biggest thing for people is not so much what, but how like how to keep the color clean. And so I try in my courses, um, in, and especially when I record them in studio, I try and do a lot of close-ups on the palette and on the brush on the paper so that I can show exactly uh, the ratio of water to pigment. That is such an important part because I often feel when I look at your work and I look at the work of some other urban sketchers who do so much watercolor work, it feels like as if you've just invented colors that don't exist on my palette. And <laughs> I think it's just, you know, those 10,000 hours of moving paint around successfully and unsuccessfully. And somebody, uh, I forget who, one watercolorist that I was reading said, um, you know, one in four watercolors that he does is good. And I would say that's about a success rate that I would say, you know, 75% end up in a drawer or the trash. Um, or I turn them over and I use it for practice. So um, you just have to keep doing it again and again and again until you get that ratio of water to pigment and you understand the feel and it's really like a feel like it's almost like if you use a brush often enough you understand the weight of the brush with the right amount of water and the weight of the brush with too much water like you just understand it in your hand and then you look at your palette and you know how much if you've put too much water in the in that wash but it's because you've done the 10,000 hours 
you know, Shari, some people are going to listen to you say that 75% of your sketches go in the drawer and they're never, they never see, they're never shown to the public and it'll be discouraging to them. So <laughs> can you say one good reason why or how people can start to enjoy these failures, so to say? Um, well, I think every failure is a learning experience and every failure also has something that is pretty positive in it right so you you might in every painting that you do or every sketch that you do have one little area where you thought hey that worked right there that little spot that worked so when i mean failure when i say failure it means i wouldn't exhibit them let's say i wouldn't sell them um it doesn't mean that they're failures necessarily they're they're learning experiences but i wouldn't put them in a frame um, I mean, some are real failures and I would tear them up. Uh, some are just like, they're not my favorites. Um, and, you know, but you, I, I would say that I, I've learned something from every, every time I have a brush in my hand. And I guess it's very important to be uh, objective and critical about your own work, to be able to even understand which part is failing and which part you know in a picture that you might not like that you've made to be able to find which part worked it requires some amount of deconstruction of your work yes and here's something else that's really interesting that i found because i put them in a drawer in a filing cabinet is that sometimes i pull them out a couple of months later and i think that wasn't so bad why did i hate that thing <laughs> And then I, or I look at it and I think, you know what, it was just missing some darks. And then I go back. In fact, I, I think on my blog, I have an example of that, of like a painting that I, I painted on location. And then I came home and I thought, oh, that's a wishy-washy, really not so nice thing. And then I pulled it out of the drawer a couple of months later and I thought it was just missing darks and I added darks. So I scanned it before and I scanned it after just as an, as a teaching example of sometimes you're just afraid. And I think, I think in watercolor, because people uh, think it has water in the name, that it needs to have a lot of water in it. But, and so people often don't get dark enough in areas of their work. So sometimes you just need to punch it up with a little dark and then it's a lot more successful. It's this habit of looking back at our work and trying to, uh, trying to break it down into the elements you know, things that work, things that didn't work, things we tried, things that we wanted to try but ended up not going for. That, that feels like a really crucial part of, like, I think that peop, uh, not enough people deconstruct their their work and and look at it almost dispassionately. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think it, it also takes a certain amount of courage to... Uh, post your work for I mean uh, this is not just for me I be, uh, but I mean for all of us to post our work in public places to put it on Facebook groups or on Instagram um, and I think you know Urban Sketchers as a whole is a very very encouraging group so people feel welcome to post um, and not feel like they're putting it up there and asking and asking for um, for a criticism necessarily or feedback so I you know I have to say that, that that is one thing that's helped me a lot but I think that um on our own we are our own worst critics often of our own work um I'm certainly guilty of that and uh 
Um, and so, but I, but I also think that's how you push yourself. You know, if you're always trying to improve, to be better at drawing or to be better at painting, um, that's kind of why you do it. Otherwise, if you felt like you were perfect and your work was great, then you probably wouldn't do anything tomorrow. Right. But, um, exactly right. Yeah. That's really the beauty of this urban sketching community. Like it just how that, and I was talking about the same thing with Paul as well, that. I feel that there are no entry barriers to being an urban sketcher. You don't have to be a, a certain level of artist. You don't have to have a certain amount of proficiency with whatever tools you're using. It's uh, the act of urban sketching makes you an urban sketcher, not the result of your sketches. Yes, and that was what was so, so exciting when I went to the first symposium in Santo Domingo that year because prior to that, I had only taken uh, watercolor workshops with small groups where the teacher is uh, the, the maestro and um, knows everything and the students are there uh, to watch and listen, but, you know, and ask questions, but uh, th there's really only one teacher in that group. And when I got to Urban Sketchers and everybody was a teacher and everybody was a student um, at the same time, like instructors take workshops and instructors teach and you could be sitting next to somebody who's a fantastic sketcher and also a participant and they will teach you as much as the instructor so um that was what was so fantastic it was that community spirit of um of learning and teaching uh for everybody um that there wasn't a single teacher uh that was that was what it was an absolute revelation. I mean, I, I probably didn't sleep that week because it was just so stimulating, so exciting to uh, to have so much input and so much to think about and so many different styles. And it just like exploded my head of like, wow, the way all these people work is in so many different directions and so many thought processes and everybody had a different learning background and was completely open to sharing everything that they knew that uh i just i just was like oh this is just so unique so very unique it's this feeling of wonder that i think all urban sketchers share when they meet one another that there is somebody else who is obsessed about this same thing as me because i think all of us in our family lives in our regular friend circles we are the odd ones out, the people who have little sketchbooks in their pockets and yes. are drawing things. And then I remember the first Urban Sketchers meetup that I attended. It felt like I had suddenly found my tribe. Yeah, We were sitting in a cafe and this was with the, I think one of the earliest times for me was with a group in Minneapolis. So Amber Sousen was there and Pam was there. And what was so amazing to me was this moment when we stopped talking and we were in a cafe and everybody, the conversation just died down after two minutes and everybody took their sketchbooks out. And for the first time, I thought, this is not just me alone who does this. This is so many people and I yeah, can be one of great. the group. It, it is a fantastic, fantastic uh, uh, feeling to have. And um, I remember also going out on one of those mornings before a workshop and just seeing people all over the street, just sitting there with their sketchbooks on benches. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's this uh, feeling of permission that you didn't think you needed, but it's something that's granted to you that 
it's okay to do this it's okay to spend your time like this and enjoy it you don't have to feel odd in any sense uh shari i want to ask you as a teacher now with covid-19 everything has moved online and all these workshops have gotten cancelled and all these events aren't happening anymore so so how do you how do you meet their needs now what are some things you're doing well i you know i i did have a whole uh year of workshops that i was supposed to do in person and um when uh covid started i had already been thinking about wanting to do some online classes because i had done some previously with uh, craftsy blueprint um a couple of years ago or about four or five years ago and i thought that it might be interesting to do some on my own so um you know when covid happened um i thought how can i how, you know maybe now i have the time really to do this so i started recording them um at home and i'm lucky i have space at home so i was able to convert a uh, part of my studio into a video recording uh studio and um just use basically because we couldn't really get out much use iPhones and things that I had in the house to be able to do this but I was lucky because I had already done some classes so I had the experience plus I had already had teaching experience so I was able to quickly sort of pivot and uh come out with the first course in mid April which was pretty quick um and to have you know a full a full online uh website a new teaching website and um i've been able to put out a course a month but it was sort of i you know i work with my husband we're uh, we're a very good team he's a writer uh and uh and now a cameraman and now an editor a video editor um and uh so we quickly learned i mean you know we already have marketing experience because we were we met in advertising in the advertising field So my husband is a copywriter and um I'm an art director so we were able to do you know the writing and the website I was able to do the website and he was able to do the video editing and the camera work and um I already knew what I wanted to teach and I already knew what I wanted to say and I'm used to teaching so it was really a matter of the technical details how do we figure out where where the camera goes and um how many cameras that i want to have and how do we get good sound and good picture and if we can get good sound and good picture i know what i want to say so i was able to you know start with courses so we did we did 3 in studio and then when things started to open up we said okay let's let's go out so we did uh, we've done one out on location which um has its fair share of technical uh challenges sound is a big one of course because uh you're you're outdoors and and I'm speaking so it's a matter of you know making sure that you know when a garbage truck comes by i mean we try to go to a park but still people walk by you're in a public place there's airplanes going overhead uh you know uh wind uh, all kinds of things uh but we were we we were able to do it so i'm very happy that i was able to so far do four and i'm recording a fifth this week so uh yeah so it, i've been i feel uh very lucky that i've been able to shift my focus 
and continue teaching, even though COVID has made it so difficult uh, for everybody. But one of the things that I'm very happy with is that um, in the results of my survey that I sent out to my students, people were so happy that they were able to find a lot of courses. There are many teachers doing, I mean, not just mine, but a lot of people are doing Zoom classes. A lot of people are doing courses like mine, recording things and uh, so it's, again, we're lucky as artists, I think, that we have a hobby to keep us busy also during this time. Which, which reminds me, uh, are these courses designed for people who are already somewhat versed in watercolors? What's the profile of the kind of students that come to your courses or that you want coming to your courses? Well, I, you know, I don't teach beginner, I don't teach beginner watercolor or beginner drawing. So I kind of target it to the people who come to my workshops at Urban Sketchers uh, Symposia and also to my own workshops. I sort of think of that. So they already have a little watercolor experience. They already know how to draw a little bit and they want to strengthen their skills, whether it's in watercolor or composition or, you know, one of my courses is light and shadow or tackling specific subjects like, like how to paint different kinds of water. I was just going to mention that I really appreciate how your courses have a very specific goal. So it's very, it's very easy to tell that I want to learn this because it will help me tackle exactly this problem that I have. Like you mentioned, the one about water is how to paint water surfaces is like an enduring challenge to so many people across skill levels. So to have something that specifically focuses on that and helps you to make sense of this kind of natural phenomena is really great. So so my aim is always to uh, give students skills so that they, when they go out, they can have skills that they take away from my courses that will help them when they're on location. That's what I hope for, is not so much to replicate exactly what I do, uh, but to teach them how to look and evaluate a scene and give them the tools to put it down on paper in a way that is effective. That's really the aim. So I try to put myself in like, what, how can they take those things away? Shari, I have just one uh, final question left with me. And this has been such a nice, positive conversation for me. I've, yeah. I've picked up so many things from you. Me too. Uh, this is a question that I'm hoping to be able to ask all my uh, guests in one form or another. And I'm curious to hear what you have to say. So my question is, uh, to an, a non-artist, to somebody who's not drawing for pleasure, not drawing during their leisure time, is not an urban sketcher, what is one good reason you could give for them to try urban sketching? Uh, to try urban sketching or to try drawing? Because like if someone's never drawn before, it's pretty hard to convince somebody to go out into the world and draw. Well, let's say, uh, let's not say out into the world. Let's even think of urban sketching as simply drawing from observation. Even if you're indoors and you're drawing your television and the stand it's on, I think that could qualify as an urban sketch. Yes. Well, part of, um, well, one of the reasons I like drawing is the, um, the meditative aspect of uh, forgetting about the rest of the world and just really f- super focusing on 
looking at a contour of an object and trying to put that down on paper. So for me, the, the process itself is, um, uh, is one that I really enjoy uh, because I, I, it, it's like meditation for me. Uh, when, I, when I've been drawing for an hour and then suddenly I realize, okay, I got to go do something else. I really feel like I'm coming out of, of something like meditation or yoga or something. It feels so useful right now, especially when we're so distracted by so much conflicting news and everybody's life. So many lives are in upheaval because of the way work is changed, the way uh, living situations have changed and our social lives have changed. So like a moment of meditation or being able to ponder on something that is not directly related to the pro uh, problems in our lives it feels like a very welcome relief it does it does and then if someone wants to actually get outside and do a little bit of drawing um, and it doesn't have to be a big scene it could be your coffee cup while you're sitting in a cafe um, it makes you more present in your space i think of where you are if you're especially i find if you're outside and if you're in a place that you're not familiar with, like if you're traveling and you have a little sketchbook with you, it makes you more present in the space in understanding the people around you. That's what I appreciate most about having a sketchbook when I travel is that um, I, I, you know, I, I, I can hear more things around me. I, I observe more things. Um, but it's also sounds and smells. It, it's it's like it it sort of opens all your senses to where you are, rather than just passing through a place. You're in it for a time, and that creates a memory for you that perhaps will be a longer lasting memory than if you just took a photo of a place and moved on. Do you find? I mean, you've been doing this for so many years, more than me. So I'm curious to know: Do you find that when you look at an old sketch or a painting of yours? that you can almost also see what you can remember exactly that day or that moment Absolutely. or the thing that you were oh, looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I'll go back through my old sketchbooks. I'll remember who I was with, you know, sometimes on, on uh, Facebook, people post memories of, uh, you know, of different sketching events. And when I see those sketches, I remember sitting next to that person. I remember the conversation that I had. Um, it's just, uh, uh, you know, uh, it evokes like, it's like, a, it's like opening a whole window in your brain of things that might be further back in the filing cabinet and they come forward because of your sketch. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized I have one more question. Oh, I don't know how okay. I missed it. My final question therefore is what is something that you appreciate having learned from a workshop that you attended? And this is where you mentioned my workshop. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, when I take let's be subtle about uh, it. Let's just yes. throw in my workshop towards the when end. I, yes. When I take workshops, because my weakness is always drawing people. Uh, so I will always choose workshops that push me to draw more people. Uh, so let's go in chronological order of the amazing people work, people drawing workshops that I've taken. Uh, in, in Santo Domingo with Veronica Lawler and another one with Melanie Rhyme. Um, and then in Chicago with you, 
where we were standing on a really, really cold street corner and drawing people. But it didn't matter. I had to go buy a jacket after that. I was so cold and drink a lot of coffee. Um, but we did so many fantastic exercises for observing people. And then another one that was really remarkable was with uh, Suhita and Marina in, uh, in the Netherlands on the beach. So those are all really amazing workshops where people have pushed me to, you know, instructors have pushed me to look at drawing people in different ways than I would normally think. All, gr all great. And you are in there with those five. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. That, that's, that's the clip I was looking for. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're at the end of my questions. Um, this was a really lovely conversation, Shari, and I'm really glad that we did this. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for having this time to talk together. It was really nice. It was a, a great conversation. And, um, you know, I think sometimes, uh, you know, in these times of COVID, we're so disconnected from our sketcher friends. I feel that way anyway. And uh, so it's really nice to just be able to think about these things and reach out and connect, even though it's only over the Internet. But it really, it makes me feel better about this time and gives me hope that one day we're going to be sketching in person again together. So, so thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me in this episode of the Sneaky Art Podcast. If you like this show, consider sharing it with friends who have similar interests. I would also love to hear what you think of our conversation in this episode, so get in touch with me on email or send me a message on Instagram. In the next episode, I will speak to a Silicon Valley engineer who came to urban sketching and fine art as a way to find peace and tranquility inside of a busy life with multiple responsibilities. What joy does Uma derive from urban sketching? And what does she mean when she says that she paints like an engineer? Stay tuned to find out. <laughs>